Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And that's right, we said good morning because we are at a new time, a new condensed half hour. We'll have to talk about what we used to talk about an hour in a half hour, but I think it's going to be uh, excellent and entertaining. We have some great guests coming up. Jeff Balaban is going to talk about uh, APAC and why the altar of bipartisanship is not quite what it's cracked up to be. And we're going to have Amy Sarah Clark for the Jewish Week is going to be talking about the controversy over secular education in Haredi and Hasidic schools. But first, you know, quick headlines. And the biggest headline, Joe Biden not running for president. Uh, why is Joe Biden all of a sudden not running for president? I think there was a window that people thought they would, but he's going to have to wait. He would have had to wait till Hillary, you know, kind of fall faltered or gotten somebody got indicted or the like, and it was just too long to keep waiting. And I think, you know, we had another Bidenism. Biden went ahead and said this week uh, that, uh, well, he was actually the one who was in favor of killing Osama bin Laden going into Abbottabad. And he said a couple of years ago that he wasn't in favor of it, but he was kind of saying it to criticize Hillary. Now, I think the White House and the president just pulled him inside and said, Joe, you know, we're not going to be having to defend you with uh, your foot and mouth syndrome. Uh, constantly. That's not going to happen. You know, it's time to fish or cut bait. And he decided he wasn't ready and he was going to go ahead and not uh, and not do it. And what's going on on the Republican side? I have to admit, I think when we left you before the summer, I was like, Donald Trump is a joke. It's not going to happen. Well, boy, was I wrong. And I've been wrong before. Uh, not often. I uh, don't don't nod that much of Rummy, but I was wrong, certainly about that. John uh, Trump is clearly here to stay. And but, you know, when I want to, I do not want to hear one more time that Donald Trump is a self-made man. That side of it, yes, absolutely successful, great, uh, you know, number of great businesses, great promoter, and a, really a, 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 has a knack for tapping into what the public wants, but he is not a self-made man. Last point, to just say, Bill de Blasio goes to Israel. Everybody's all over him saying, oh, Bill de Blasio went to Israel. Jews, great, wonderful, go to the Kotel, do all the stops, talk about anti-Semitism. Everybody's flaunting all over themselves. And yet, I think they took great pains to kind of appear even-handed. They go there at a time of a crisis, and they are kind of saying, oh, well, you know, we have to have peace, we have to have peace, we have to have peace. Who does that sound like? Sounds like J Street, folks, okay? It's really a, not wall-to-wall the way Bloomberg, when he used to go there and said, we will not tolerate terrorism, we will not tolerate Israel has every right to defend itself. We didn't get that from Bill de Blasio. And no, look no further than his, uh, than his spokeswoman, his, his city hall spokeswoman is a J Street alum. Uh, nothing against J Street. They get their, uh, you know, they get their message out there. But you see that from Bill De Blasio, that infection of the progressive movement of this equivocation on Israel, that we have to make sure both sides need to refrain from violence. And I was a little bit disappointed. I thought that he was amongst New York recent New York City mayors, Koch, Diggins. Giuliani and Bloomberg, he was the least supportive, even though, yes, kudos for going to Israel. Okay, let's get right back into it. Want to welcome to the show once again, Jeff Balaban. Jeff, a longtime conservative pundit, consultant, and well-known Washington and Jewish activist. Uh, Jeff is uh, at a very interesting time. We're at, uh, for, for the Republican Party, both in the presidential race as well as the uh, Speaker of the House race, and uh, Jeff also penned a very provocative op-ed uh, a, entitled, uh, uh, well, specifically with regard to APAC, and uh, you know that's been a 
cause of yours, or at least a frequent topic of yours, specifically about APAC and bipartisanship, or the spirit of bipartisanship that APAC, or the ideal of bipartisanship that APAC seeks to embody, and why that is bad for Israel. But Jeff, let's take the Republican piece first. We'll get out of the way very quickly. What is going on with the Republican Party, and are we going to be in a situation where they they are pulled so far out of the middle grounds in the United States that they cannot get elected. We cannot elect a Republican president. Good morning, Michael. Very glad to be back on the show. In fact, if I recall correctly, I think I was your first guest ever, right? Uh, very possible. Yes, we'll have to check the archives. Yeah. I promise you'll take care of that. Fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, dealing with, with the issue of the House leadership race, and, and I think more importantly than who it ends up being, is, as you say, the process and what it means about the party. Uh, the truth is the country is extremely polarized. Democrats have moved so far left that it is now the mainstream to be a socialist. And that, that was what was adopted. Uh, Bernie Sanders called himself a socialist. And uh, the, the reviews afterwards and, you know, the polls afterwards, and you know, people were perfectly happy to be called socialist. So the Democratic Party is now pretty much governed by the progressive wing, and it's a race to the top of progressivism. Jim Webb, who was the only one who actually adopted traditional liberal democratic values is not even a factor. He's an outlier. He has no constituency. The Republican Party has moved to the right, but not nearly as much. In fact, there's an interesting website called All Sides, which is completely non-biased about this, as, at least as, as completely as one can be. Uh, and they actually demonstrate that the, the Democrats move further left and the Republicans have moved right. Uh, but the Republicans have, and what's going on there is less a concern about losing the ever-shrinking middle of America and more concern about a schism within the party. And so you have what's referred to as the base, conservatives, generally social conservatives, and then you have more moderate fiscal conservatives, and uh, also known as the establishment. Sometimes the right is referred to by the establishment as wingnuts and crazies, and the establishment is referred to as rhinos, Republicans in name only. But that's the current fight. That fight's been going on for several election cycles, uh, and we've been losing in those elections. It, this, it, it does matter tremendously for Republicans to be able to take the White House for them to be coherent. They cannot afford to lose the base, because they, they can't win without the base, and neither McCain nor Romney was conservative enough or reliably or viewed as reliably conservative enough to be able to get the base out to vote. On the other hand, they want the establishment because the establishment brings in a lot of the early money and becomes very important in, in winning elections as well. Uh, that's folks in the primary. As far as the general election, you know, it's uh, we're a polarized country. It, it's it's going to be a fight. Everyone's going to try to sound centrist, but it's a fight of extremes. That's where we are. Right. So it's interesting you would say, you know, talk about how it's acceptable for a socialist or a self-described socialist to run for, for president as a major party candidate. I'm sure there was a time in our history that that would have been anathema for a person as a socialist to say I'm running. But so I understand where you're going with that. I think w w one of the frustrations, at least, or that I see uh, that many let's say, non-less partisan people see out there is that, and with this, you know, after, right after this question, I want to switch back to our main topic, is that this hell no caucus, you know, the with the Freedom Caucus, and they just don't seem to want to go ahead and govern 
or to do anything. And if you just, you know, stay stubbornly outside, uh, you know, you're kind of the House leadership is left with two choices. You can either go with the Democrats, which they don't want, or you can do nothing. And we, we just can't afford to have a government that does nothing, can we? Oh, my God, I would love a government that does nothing. I mean, so much better <laughs> well, than the government that does everything. That. I, I mean, so I much better. That. I mean, honestly, it's not that extreme, but if you give me that choice between the Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton model, and uh, let's all get home and let the states run their own business, I'll take letting the states run their own business. Okay, fine. But it, that said, neither one is realistic. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, okay, I mean, let, let's switch to the topic government. at hand. Let, let's get Jewish for a second, right. Okay. Uh, so you, you ha- so at, on the pages of the Five Town Jewish Times, you re- wrote an article criticizing AIPAC, and uh, as well, you know, they lost the Iran fight, and then there was a rejoinder from two prominent rabbis. Uh, is this is this uh, is this fight is this good for the Jews? And I hate to put it that way, but you know, are we in a sense airing uh, some things that are better left unsaid or undebated? Right, well, first of all, we, we live in a real bubble if we think that this is not being focused on in Washington. Right now in Washington, is, it, it already about, about three years ago, four years ago, I heard about Republican offices who, because they were so pro-Israel, were so disgusted at APAC that they stopped taking their calls and they stopped taking donations from people, I know, not technically affiliated with APAC, but as we all understand, there are dozens of PACs and fundraisers who bundle, and the money is... Um, I'll be careful with how I say it, but the money is related to APAC's view of, uh, of how people in Washington should be supported. So, you know, this, this is not something which is not going to happen, because the truth is, and this is, goes to the heart of the problem, Michael, Israel is not a Jewish issue, meaning is, it, it, issue, Israel is an issue for Jews. But that's not the reason that America supports Israel, and that's not the reason America cares about Israel, and it's not the reason America hates the Iran deal. Right? It has nothing to do with APAC. It has to do with the fact that Americans feel very strongly about Israel. Right? And, and certainly in the Republican Party, and certainly that wing of the party which we're talking about, you know, that, that, that takes no prisoners, I mean, the poll numbers are extraordinary. When they poll Republicans, not Jews, they poll Republicans and ask them the question, if America has a choice of policies, one of which are initiatives, one of which is in America's interest, and on the other hand, is, and, and it opposes Israel's interest. Should we follow America's interest or Israel's interest? 67% of Republicans say Israel. You follow Israel's interest. That's extraordinary. Right? And that it's not American Jews, <laughs> that's Republican. And the reason they feel that way is because they have a sense of American exceptionalism, which says that America is a force for moral good in the world, and so is Israel, and protecting Israel and the Jews is part of simple morality. The other reason is they understand that usually issues in which America's and Israel's interests might philosophically come, you know, come at, uh, at odds, it tends to be much more existential for Israel and incidental for America. So this is, a, this is a public policy debate which is not about Jews, and yet we make it all about Jews because we defer to APAC, which is not, in my opinion, um, structured or optimized to be a pro-Israel lobby. It is structured and optimized to be an American Jewish pride group with lobbies, and they're two totally different things. So explain that for a second. Explain to me what you mean by we, there are plenty of American Jewish groups. APAC describes itself as the pro-Israel lobby. Are you saying that really it's just like B'nai B'rith? Well, I'm, no. It's not like B'nai B'rith uh, in, in terms of what it does 
in terms of its activities, but in terms of how it makes decisions, it makes its decisions based on its membership. Now, APAC says, and this is one of the points that the rabbis put out, and they're just wrong. APAC says that uh, they always abide by the policies of the Israeli government, right, the democratically elected government of Israel. It's simply false. It's simply false. APAC has said to both to, to uh, Begin and to Shamir when they were both prime ministers, and it was Netanyahu now. APAC refuses to support Jewish life in Judea and Samaria. APAC is dedicated to the two-state solution. APAC believes that Judea and Samaria should not have Jewish people living there. That's that's the message they give people in Congress. When they take members of Congress over there, they will not go to Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria. The only place they'll take them to is to meet Abu Mazen in Ramallah. Well, <laughs> you know, the pro-Israel position, I'm sorry, is not we must create a Palestinian state. The pro position is we want, we want a peace process, whatever we want to do. It's up to Israel to decide it. But to adopt this particular approach and to push it, it, it actually offends pro-Israel groups who are not Jewish. And they're doing it. You know, you talked about partisan, you called me partisan, which is fine, and you talked about APAC's bipartisanship. What's this? I'm a partisan only in the sense that I believe that it is absolutely imperative that people understand the difference between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to certain issues, and Israel's right there among them. APEC, on the other hand, claims it's bipartisan, but what they mean is they're partisan for Democrats because they create a false equivalency and claim election after election that it doesn't make a difference who's in the White House and it doesn't make a difference which party controls Congress. It is impossible for people to believe that that's telling the truth. That is not bipartisanship. That is the New York Times being even-handed between terrorists and, uh, and the IDF, meaning it's a false equivalency masquerading as bipartisanship. So what would you have done differently, or what would you do differently in the something like the Iran fight? Was there any way to have won that? Uh, was there any way to have defeated the Iran deal? Let me tell you, you have to actually want to lose to lose that. That fight would have been easy to win. Let's, 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 let's recall, historically, a year before this took place, or less than a year, there was another bill to increase the sanctions on Iran, to make them harsher. And it's a perfect example of what APAC does, because APAC, you know, Israel made a huge issue out of this. This is the number one issue. This is their priority. And APAC was, was you know, supposedly lobbying on behalf of uh, increasing sanctions. And they had enough votes to pass. The problem was there were over, you know, many, many Republicans and only one, you know, a couple of Democrats. And it didn't look good. It wasn't, didn't look bipartisan enough. So all of a sudden, APAC, this is totally public. I don't know how the rabbis can deny that APAC ever does this, because... This is simply indisputable fact, and it played out very publicly. APEC started publicly lobbying against Israel, started lobbying against the pro-Israel cause, started lobbying ag- and started lobbying against increasing sanctions on Iran. Imagine if we, I mean, you know, they completely set the table for what happened this year. So first of all, that never would have happened. It never should have happened. That was APEC lobbying, and that's when they really lost a lot of Republicans who saw them overtly going against Israel's interest for their own interest. The second thing that happened was, you know, you win this, it would have been easy. I mean, I got calls from people on Capitol Hill, several people, staffers and members, asked more or less the same question in different ways, which is, I don't get it. APEC said they're raising whatever, $30, $40 million. What are they doing with that money? Because we don't see them doing anything, right, in fighting this. You know how you fight this? You take that $30, $40 million, and you tell Chuck Schumer, 
and Kristen Gillibrand and Cory Booker, but you just really need to go to Chuck and say, by the way, if you don't make this the fight of your life, if you don't whip this issue like it's the fight of your life because it is existential for Israel, and by the way, America hates it two to one, so they'll be with you, we're going to find somebody else to take your seat. Let me tell you this deal never would have gone past go. Never would have gotten past go if any of them were afraid that they would lose their seats. But what they know is that what APEC's going to do is pull the fundraiser for them, which they already did for Chuck Schumer, invite them at the policy conference, which is what they did last year when the Democrats went the other way on sanctions. And so, you know, the answer is let's have a lobby that puts Israel first and not its own relationships and fundraising first. Okay, so Jeff, last question for you. Not to get into a personal war between you and the rabbis, uh, the specific rabbis, uh, what what is it that they get wrong? What is it that they don't understand? Is it is it is it not understanding Washington, not understanding hardcore politics, trying to be that bipartisanship or nonpartisanship really doesn't work? What what is it that they're missing? Okay, first of all, like I say, bipartisanship does work, but bipartisanship is a means to an end. They have to understand that the end has to be clearly articulated policies. Saying pro-Israel, which is all I take asks of people, come you know say you're pro-Israel, come to policy conference and give us a photo op. And you'll be a hero, okay? So bipartisanship is very important, but what APAC is doing is actually fly partisanship. It's not bipartisanship. It's it's actually it's actually you know helping out one party because its base is still Jews, and Jews still put a whole raft of issues before Israel. They just want to be Democrats. But what they don't, what the rabbis don't understand, that people should feel free to read their articles. They make four points, and none of the points had any basis in reality. I mean, they claim that APAC is. <laughs> has no involvement in the way money is spent in Washington politics. It's so incredible that anyone would even think to, to put their name to that. You know, they, basically, the interest, as you say, or as you suggested, might be a reason. They are very dedicated. I know Rabbi Bill very well. I know Rabbi Hayden less well. We've met once or twice. They're extremely dedicated. They mean very, very well. They've gone out on a limb by recruiting Orthodox Jews to come to APAC uh, and being very, you know, very strong supporters of it. They just don't really understand Washington, and they don't understand politics, and APAC preys and relies exactly on people like that to try and help them pursue APAC's own agenda. Okay, Jeff Balaban, conservative activist, and now in a polemic, hopefully a friendly polemic, with uh, various other members of the community with regard to APAC and its efficacy. And uh, I imagine this is going to continue and play out, and we'll certainly have a lot to talk about on the Republican side of the ledger uh, both in Congress and in the presidential race. Jeff, thanks for joining us once again. Take care, Michael. And just as a note, we did invite uh, representatives from APAC to come on the show to rebut uh, what we just heard, but uh, they did decline. Generally, they do not, as they said, respond to debates. Uh, I want to welcome to uh, our show for the first time Amy Sarah Clark of the Jewish Week, who has been following a very interesting issue on the education front, particularly with regard to the New York City Department of Education and whether they will look into claims that Haredi schools or Hasidic schools in New York City provide a substandard secular education. And this actually played out on a very interesting clip that I have to watch uh, on, I think, called Brick TV, which was kind of a debate between uh, Naftali Moster and Ezra Friedlander. And Amy, you seem to almost have kind of been the referee during that debate. Uh, I don't know if that was what was intended, but tell us a little bit very briefly what's going on and, uh, and you know, where, well, where are the uh, touch points or where are the points of conflict here in this, uh, on this issue? Well, um, 
after four years or so of um, Yafed founder Naftali Moster um, advocating for um, the uh, the city to come in and um, enforce uh, the uh, the law that uh, Hasidic schools have to teach secular subjects and being ignored, um, there's been some movement over the summer um, after sending out um, a press release that and getting a lot of publicity, the city agreed to do an investigation about 52, uh, about um, 30, 38 um, Brooklyn schools and one in Queens. Um, uh, the publicity came because he sent a letter signed by 52 people as opposed to just his organization, which is what he had done before. Um, and since that time, um, there hasn't been a lot of information from the DOE about how the investigation is going. Um, and basically the response from um, people in the Hasidic community who are willing to speak publicly about it, which are very few, um, mostly Ezra Friedlander, has been if we need to, if we're going to be required to teach more secular subjects, we need more um, government money. And the response has been, um, what for? You, how much does the textbook cost? So that's kind of where we are now. We're waiting to hear the report from the DOE. Now, now, do any do any of the schools? And actually, a couple of questions. Number one: Is this limited to Hasidic schools, or, or are all yes. uh, Jewish schools no. uh, under the microscope here? Only a very, very small subset of Jewish schools. Just some Hasidic schools. There are many, many. Um, yeshivas that have fantastic secular education programs. Okay, so, and, but there's a specific scrutiny of certain schools. How did they pick these schools that was based, those were identified by these 52 people or by this organization? Yes, by the okay. 52 people. Um, everyone has some association with one of the schools, either a parent of a student or a graduate or a former teacher. Right. Now, are there, were there any specific allegations Anything uh, particularly sensational? Yes, that that the that these schools um, only teach ninety minutes. And these are all boys' schools. Girls' education is much better, um, but for the boys' schools, they only teach ninety minutes of secular education um, per day and only four days a week. And the education is taught at the end of the school day um, and is not really strictly enforced, so students don't have the sense that they really need to try in these classes, and that the secular education ends completely at about the age of 13. And they're arguing that this is um, in direct um, conflict with the state law that says that um, parochial schools need to provide um, an equivalent education to what kids get in public school. Okay, so what are the potential ramifications here? I mean, what is it that the city can do? Uh, what is it that they would do? They could close a school, they could sanction a school, they could fire, or, I mean, what, what do they have? What does anybody have the ability to do? It's a private school. The parents are choosing to send their children to this school. Uh, and, you know, what do they do? Revoke the accreditation? Yeah, they're very, I mean, that's a very good question. Basically, um, ultimately, it's the state that has power over these schools. Um, they're, they're depending on the local um, superintendents 
to basically report, do an investigation and then report to them and tell them what's going on and if they need to do anything about it. So after the city looks into it, they could go to the state and say, you need to do something about these schools, and then it's up to the state. And, yes, they could they could revoke the accreditation um, of these schools. Um, beyond that, um, I haven't really been getting very clear answers about what they could do. I mean, it's possible they could you know, go after the parents by saying that they're not sending their kids to real school at all. Um, it just depends on how they decide to enforce it. They could certainly pull state money if they wanted to. Right. But in addition. I mean, go I'll ahead. tell you the sense that I get here, but specifically on this issue, if you speak to people, I, I guess the few people in the community that are willing to speak about it, uh, and as you said correctly, there are very few, and you know, maybe uh, you could tell us, and it's understandable, is that there are plenty of schools out there that are not doing well, that don't have good, and yet uh, don't have effective educations and are not doing well on state testing and the like, uh, but somehow, uh, you know, there's a choice here, right? So these 52 parents who uh, could send their kids to other schools uh, or uh, uh, Mr. Moster could choose to go to a different school. Instead, he's going to a school, uh, and you have an expectation, I guess, what the level of uh, what the program is, uh, you know, similar to the fact that you might be in a non-yeshiva school, and you could have a similar uh, outcome. And that's, you know, there seems to be well, an element of choice here. Well, there are a few, a few things about that. First of all, to clarify, um, I would say very few of the 52 people, from what I've heard, were actually parents of current students. Most of them are yeshiva graduates themselves who feel that they were done a wrong by not being prepared to earn a living. Um, and in, so, first of all, the kids don't have a choice. It's the parents who are choosing. So you have to decide, you know, about that, you know, who has, who has a say on what a child learns and what they prepare for for the future. And second of all, um, the um, from what uh, it, my interview with Ezra Friedlander, um, basically what he said and what Naftali Moster has said is that if you want to stay in your community, you want to stay in your same shul, you want to have your same friends, you want to keep your life as is, it's not so easy to switch schools. It's not like you can say, oh, I don't like this, um, you know, Satmar uh, school, I, so I'm going to go to this one instead. You basically have to sort of find something outside of your community to go to. Right. Okay. So let's so let's get for a second. Uh, so you mentioned Ezra. Ezra's a friend. He's a uh, a very uh, good spokesman on a lot of issues for the community. Uh, but so is the instance that Ezra has been hired as a PR consultant by these schools, uh, and now he's speaking no. on their behalf. No, no, no. He's made it very clear that he is just speaking on behalf of the schools, as, as a father, as a yeshiva father and as a yeshiva graduate. Nobody has hired him. He does work for um, Agudas Israel, but not on this issue. He's speaking as an individual. It's just, it's striking nobody except for him would speak to me, not a single head of any, Jew, you know, Hasidic or Haredi organization, not anybody from any single yeshiva I contacted. So we're let you know... You, Ezra is the brave one, I guess. Or, or well, what's so? What's his connection specifically to the issue? Uh, is is his school under investigation? Obviously, I should bring him in to you know to talk to him about it. Perhaps I will, but I'm trying to figure out what is the 
you know, what's the defense? What's the defense there? What is he? Why does he feel compelled to defend it? Defend this? Uh, and, and you know, I um, actually, I, I don't, I don't want to. Actually, I don't want to have you answer for him. So I will withdraw that part of it. But what is? Well, the- I, I, I can answer for him. Okay, sure. I mean, I can give you. I mean, his he sends his kids to a Hasidic school. He went to a Hasidic school. Um, Yafed is keeping the names of the schools private because they want to make clear that their fight is not with the schools. Um, they feel that the schools are not really equipped to just suddenly beef up secular education. Um, they need help from the, from the government. So it, they, they don't want the focus to be on the schools. They want the focus to be on the government in action. So I don't know for sure whether he's sending his kids to those schools or not, but it's, it's very possible. And there are many schools that are not on the list that can fit in the category of not enough secular education. Right. Okay. And the last question for you, and we'll obviously have to continue this at a different time, is that uh, because you know it's obviously a topic that's not going away. What is the reaction from those, let's say, in the education community? I know that the only politician I've seen talking about this is the city council education chairman Danny Drum, who's been very critical of the yeshivas. Uh, and what is his reaction? Saying, "Okay, maybe we should get you more money," or what is it? What is it that he's saying? His reaction is somebody needs to look into it and find out what is really going on. And he's kind of shocked that nobody else has joined his cause. And I am shocked that I've dealt with a lot of progressive politicians for a long time. I mean, it's not a surprise that somebody who represents a Hasidic area might not want to get involved with this topic. But, you know, people who are self-described uh, progressives like Letitia James and, um, you know, just a, or, and a lot of um, other council people who are not directly connected with these communities, they don't want to touch it either. Um, I do have an interview set up with um, Mark Levine, um, head of the Jewish Caucus. Um, I don't know what he's going to say, but he has agreed to talk to me, so I want to put that on the record. Okay, and just from a point of uh, a fact, what, what, what are the test scores like? Are, are they demonstrably bad? They don't take tests. I mean, no. that's the thing that when, when people make the comparison between low-performing public schools and these yeshivas, I mean, these kids are low-performing because they don't do all of the math problems well or all of the English problems well. The kids in these schools, they don't even take these tests. They couldn't take these tests if they tried. I, you know what? I don't know for sure. If the, well, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't want so to make that assumption back. because I will tell you, yeah. I mean, I interact with Yeshiva graduates on a daily basis, if not hourly basis, and I will tell you uh, some of the smartest people I know are Yeshiva graduates. So, uh, it's but not I don't a want... question of smartness. It's a question of education. No, I'm saying there's accomplished no, there's... people who have yeah. done well on LSAT and done well in graduate school and uh, had, had, have done, you know, been able to, you know, accomplish a, a lot, um, not just, uh, you know, and not just in the Talmudic arena. But, uh, no, I, Amy, this is an important topic, and I think we should, you know, we'll continue the discussion. Unfortunately, we're out of time right now. I want to okay. thank you for joining us. I just want to clarify, though, that, again, this is just a small subset of yeshivas. There are the vast majority of yeshivas give a very good secular education, and nobody's debating that. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. It's, again, a very important topic, and we're going to leave it there for now. I'm sure it's going to continue as this is not going away anytime soon. Okay, thank you for your call. Thank you. So this is Spin Class, and we are wrapping up another uh, morning of political talk. Hope you enjoyed the new format, the new hour, the new time, and we catch you again on the Nachum Siegel Network. 